Welcome back to Bible time, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would open our understanding again. Lord, we pray this over and over again, Lord, not as a vain repetition, but Lord, as a daily need. And we ask you again today, please fill our hearts, Lord, with your spirit. Fill our souls with your spirit. Open our understanding. Teach us, Lord. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of thy word, Lord, because no man can see these things and understand these things in his own heart and mind, Lord God, without your power, without your enlightening. And so that's what we ask you to do in Jesus' name, trusting you to do it, believing you to do it, and we thank you for doing it in advance, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So here our text, but ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief is a continuation of the thought of the times and the seasons. Brethren, verse one, ye have no need that I write unto you for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. But ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath." but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now, this is loaded with truth. There's so much in here that we cannot possibly get to the bottom of it all. It's amazing when sometimes whenever I go to study, I sit there and stare at the verses. Um, sometimes I'm, you can't even call it studying. I'm just sitting there staring blankly at these verses and nothing moving in my heart, nothing moving in my mind, nothing moving in my soul, nothing moving in my spirit, trying to pray. And it's like it's all locked up and like it's like it's just a prison and there's bars of iron over the Bible and I can't get anything out of it. And all I know how to do is just pray. And sometimes I don't handle it very well. Sometimes I shut my Bible and walk away, just to be honest with you. And um, that's not what I should do, but sometimes I do that. Other times, um, I'm faithful to bow my head and pray and tell God what I'm going through and ask Him for help, and He always helps me. And usually when I walk away, I get into um, just a mess. I waste time, waste resources, waste energy, and you just got to get back to that Bible. People tell me all the time, I don't really understand the Bible. That is because the devil hates you. Get that in your soul. Remember it. The devil hates you and he doesn't want you to know this book and he will resist you when you try to go to the word of God and get understanding. And God wants to give you the understanding. The devil wants to stop you from getting understanding. Recognize the spiritual battle. Recognize that when you open this book, you are entering a field of conflict that the devil doesn't even want you to open it. But if you open it, he doesn't want you to understand it. It is not because the Bible is hard to understand that we cannot understand it. It is because of our own hard hearts and because of the enemy of our souls, the devil who does not want us to understand the Bible. We need God's illumination. We need God's understanding. We need God's quickening. We need God to drive back the devil. The Bible says, resist the devil and he 
he will flee from you. And we resist the devil this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, trusting God to help us against our great enemy. As great as an enemy as the devil is to us, Christ is a greater enemy to the devil. And here today he says, you brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. And we've been looking at that word, the thief, talking about how Christ is a thief here in the Bible, which is not a normal name of Christ. How many of you have seen somebody with a cross with all the names of God on it or a piece of artwork and in the middle of it featured as the main name of Christ is thief? That's not a normal one. Neither is the name jealous. There's a few one. There's a few of those words that people just don't usually put up on the names of God. We know that the devil's a thief. Jesus said that the devil came, but uh, is a thief, and that the thief cometh, but for no other reason but to steal, kill, and destroy. And we made the observation yesterday that the devil's just a copycat of Christ, and he's trying to steal from Christ. But Christ is going to beat the devil at his own game, and Christ is going to steal from the devil what already belongs to Christ that the devil thinks he has stolen from Christ. Christ is going to rob the robber. Amen. Christ is going to steal from the stealer. Christ is going to defeat death through death. He already has in in a way. (coughs) He's defeating the devil at his own game. He's beating the devil in every area. It's like um, every time the devil tries something, Jesus does it better with with both hands tied behind his back. He limits himself so that the devil thinks he's got a chance, and then Jesus beats the devil anyway, even though he's limited. God is in the business of humiliating Satan. That's what this is about. Um, the, my wife and I were talking about that last night. She was talking about the just the amazing fact of the judgment of God against the devil. How God is going to just kind of hang out victory there in front of the devil's nose. Let him smell it. Let him get so close he can taste it and then take it away. And then the, and then the Lord is going to let the devil smell it again. And he's going to give the devil three big opportunities to win and let the devil get just this close, get absolutely so close that it's impossible for him to lose and then make him lose. And God is in the business of humiliating the devil. The devil is going to lose and it makes him mad. It makes him so mad. And God just keeps on humiliating him and defeating him and destroying him. And some people out there their high-mindedness will say, well, that's pretty petty. Well, you can think what you want and you can say what you want. God is full of glory. He's holy. He's pure. He's almighty. He's the great I am. He's the creator of the universe. You can think what you want to think about God, but he's going to win and you better be careful and fear God lest he does to you what he's going to do to the devil. And that is to humiliate and bring you low. You get all high-minded about God and think that you're going to stand in judgment of God And instead, you're going to stand under the judgment of God. Now, this verse says, but ye brethren, but ye brethren. Again, this is a contrast with verse three of our text that um, we looked at before. Let's go back. I already turned to another passage. Let's go back to first Thessalonians. I don't think I told you guys where to go because you're not supposed to go yet. So it's just my fault. First Thessalonians five and verse 3 for when they shall they shall say peace and safety so the they of first Thessalonians 5:3 we looked at and we understand that to be the world that they are those that sleep 
They are those of darkness. They, in verse 7, are drunken in the night. They are they that sleep in the night. But we are those who have been not appointed to wrath. They are appointed to wrath. We are appointed to salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So this they, these are the world. These are the people who are in rebellion to God. These are the ones that are in darkness. He says, but ye brethren are not in darkness. Now, if you go to John chapter one, we want to look at the light. Uh, uh, An old brother in the Lord who is out um, street preaching, uh, brother Michael had us out all out there street preaching the other day. I appreciate Brother Michael and um, an old saint in the Lord came out with us. And he was out there with zeal passing out tracks. Um, I was blessed to see him doing it. And he had a he had a paper that he wrote up about eternal life and he shared that with me. I was reading in there and he really put a lot of emphasis on this and God used that old saint to stir my mind and my heart about this topic. Um, so I thank the Lord for Brother Randy. Now, here it says um, in John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is talking about the word of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. This is the difference between we and they. This is the difference between ye and them. This is the difference between the saved and the lost. The lost are in darkness and the light has shined in the darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. When I was a little boy, my dad was trying to lose some weight and he he started playing basketball with some men and we had to drive a long way to get there. And it was always late at night when we came back and it was just some um, Christian men playing basketball basketball together older um, dads mainly and us kids would just kind of sit in the bleachers and watch the dads play and we were driving back from one of these basketball nights I don't even know where it was it was just a long way from home and as we drove back the headlights from the car were shining over the tops of the hills and it looked like you could see in Missouri we have these rolling rippling hills they're not necessarily even big everything rolls and ripples here so uh, most of the time unless you're going a long way down and it's been completely redone with heavy equipment you're going to do a lot of ups and downs all the way down and you'll do a lot of ups and downs all the way up it's just a rippling rolling landscape here so as we went over these rippling little hills on the road some of them were i'm literally we're talking like 10 to 20 feet elevation changes that are just constant. And then you'll have a a 200-foot elevation change and then a 300-foot elevation change and then a 30-foot and a 50-foot. And it's just constantly rippling um, changes for those of you online that have never been to the Ozarks. But as we went through these rippling hills, the headlights would go over the tops of several of these little hills at a time, or one or two, maybe, and you could see that it looked like on the back side of the hill, on the front side was light, but on the back side of the hill, it looked like the darkness was pooled, like a swimming pool full of darkness, or a pond full of darkness on the back side of the hill. And as the vehicles, the van began to come and climb that little hill, the 
lights began to shine over the top and it gave the effect if you if you focused on the darkness it looked like the darkness was running away like it was fleeing from the light and running and jumping in the ditches and jumping in behind the trees and jumping behind the bushes and trying to find anywhere it could find to get out of the light but it was obvious if you stared at the darkness that the darkness never changed The darkness was still darkness and the darkness would flee, but the darkness was still darkness. And this is what God is saying here. The light shined in darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. This is what Jesus did when he came, when Jesus Christ came and became a man, God, the creator, (coughs) excuse me, God, the creator became a man. And when he became a man, the light shined in darkness and they just, just like roaches, they just scattered and the darkness fled and it hid in the ditches. It hid behind trees. It hid behind bushes. And finally the darkness rose up in the night and took Jesus who said, this is the power of darkness. He said, I was ever with you daily in the temple and you took me not. He says, now you come out to me as, as against what a thief. How about that? They treated him like a thief. He's coming back like a thief. This is an amazing truth about Christ. It's not an aspect of Christ that usually gets taught about, but Christ is coming as a thief. He said, you've come against me as against a thief. You have your, your sticks and your stones. You have your swords. You have your torches. And you've come out against me as a thief. He says, but I haven't been as a thief. When Jesus came the first time, he didn't come as a thief. He came as a lamb. He came to lead his people to salvation and yet they rejected him and treated him like a thief. The darkness comprehended him not and they gathered against him in the night in the power of darkness and they thought they had won. God allowed the light of God to be hidden from their view so that they could complete their dirty act of murder and they put Jesus Christ to death on the cross but Jesus did not die at their hands. He gave up the ghost. He laid down his own life for their sins and then he was buried and he rose again the third day and that light came bursting back from the innermost parts of the earth. Jesus Christ arose. The Bible says he, that um, John the Baptist came to bear witness of that light and it says that he was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 9 of John chapter 1, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus is the true light and Jesus, it says, lighteth every man that cometh into the world, but many do not comprehend him. Many do not see him. That's the them. That's the they of that first Thessalonians chapter five. They that will face the judgment of God. They that are in the darkness, they that are sleeping in the night, they that are drunken in the night. They're in chapter five. Grab me my pen, would you? That's, that's the them. Now this light, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Bible says, as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's us. It says, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, even as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. 
So here this light, Jesus Christ, it says in verse 17, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. This light, Jesus Christ, that has come into the world, lightens every man that comes into the world. This light is who we are of. And he says, ye brethren are not in darkness. This is how you are not in darkness is through the light of the world. Jesus Christ. If you do not have the light of the world, you are in darkness. If you have the light of the world, then you are in the light. And it, the Bible says in first John, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanseth us from all sin. So here he says, ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Now that day is that day of the Lord. And then he gets into overtake you as a thief. So by way of quick review, that day of the Lord, we looked at in Revelation 19, we looked at it through Isaiah, through the whole book of Isaiah in one of the lessons, um, just to read, just to give you the synopsis, the outline of Revelation. We won't actually turn there today. Revelation 19 begins with God's wrath and anger. The catching away of his bride is already exhibited for us in Revelation 4. We find the saints of God that are the, the church in heaven with God throughout the entire book of Revelation after chapter 3, which is the things which are the church age. And we find that the saints that are um, worn out by the devil during the revelation are tribulation saints. They are saved Jews. And if any Gentiles do get saved during that time, they would would fall into that category as well. Then you have the, so you have the wrath and anger of God in, in Revelation 19. You have the restoration of Israel um, that is happening during this time. Revelation 19, 11 through 21 is the millennial reign beginning. Revelation 20 um, gets to the eventual rebellion of the earth with the devil. Revelation 20, 10 through 15, the final battle and destruction of Christ's enemies. And as 1 Corinthians 15 says, then come at the end. <coughs> now, this sequence again is all through the whole Bible. And we have noted, and God has helped us with this, that the day of the Lord is a literal 24 hour day, and it is a literal thousand year reign. And it is more than just what a day is to you and me. And we noted that God is outside of time looking in because God is the creator of time. When Jesus Christ made the world, Jesus Christ made time. The time is based on the universe. Time is based on the movements of the planets. Time is based on the sunrise and the sunset, which is the action of the world spinning, spinning through the universe as it rotates the sun. The seasons are based on the earth's orbit around the sun. All of this stuff is created stuff. Before there was a universe, before there was an earth, there was no time. And God already existed in the beginning was the word. So whenever it talks about the day of the Lord, what you have here is in a way what they would call a juxtaposition, which is a comparison of two seemingly incompatible truths that are placed together to set each other off and force you to think about them. You have the day of the Lord. What can be more of a contradiction in the Bible than God who is without time being subjected? 
subjected to time to the point that there is a day that is called the day of the Lord. It's an absolute, in, absolutely incredible thought to think about God having a day. But here's the thing. God's day has a, has a pause button, has a play button, has a rewind button if he wants it. God doesn't have to live according to the measure of time that we live by. You say that's you, that can't be true. Time is a law, but God made time and time is subject to God. And while you are under the law of time, God is not. There was a man in the Bible named Hezekiah who was going to die and God told him he could live another little while. And when God told him that, he said, the prophet asked him, what sign would you like to see? Shall the sun, the shadow of the sun go down in the dial of Ahaz by 15 degrees or go back 15 degrees? If I remember the number of degrees, right? And (coughs) old Hezekiah, he said, it's a light thing for God to fast forward time. Think about that. That's not light. But, you know, there's times all the time that you, you space out and Maybe you're working hard and you go, oh, wait, it's dinner time. And I didn't know it. So that's probably Hezekiah's reasoning for that. You know, we miss time all the time. That's not a big deal. But let's see it go backwards. So God did it. And God took the sun backwards. God took time backwards. By the way, there's a time in the book of Joshua whenever the children of Israel were fighting the people there in the land of Canaan. And Joshua said, son, stand thou still. And it did for a whole day. That's a picture, by the way, of the day of the Lord. Okay. God's day doesn't have to go by your rules. You have to let God, if you want to understand God, you have to let God define his own terms. And you have to let God be God in your own mind if you're going to understand God. As long as you're trying to force God to fit inside a human context instead of a biblical context, you will never understand God and you will never understand this book. You have to come to this book as a child coming to a father. When a child comes to his daddy, a little four-year-old comes to his daddy and he says, Daddy, how many days is it till Christmas? It doesn't matter if the daddy says 6,000. That little child, as a little child, will believe that daddy. Now, God isn't going to lie to his children. God is truth. But my point is that child is going to believe the daddy no matter what. And that's what you've got to get in your heart if you're going to understand the Bible. You've got to purpose in your heart and to trust God and believe the word of God no matter what. As the word of God says, let God be true and every man a liar. So this day of the Lord, that day, that, that, that day, how about that? We get a double that in first Thessalonians five, four, ye are not, ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. That day of the Lord we noticed in the book of Daniel is a day that whenever Christ comes for his church, Michael will stand up and Michael, the archangel, and it will be a day of trouble. The Bible says there'll be trouble. There'll be tribulation. There'll be travail. We noticed yesterday as we studied yesterday that the day of the Lord is sudden, just like the Bible said that it would be for yourselves. Know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief 
thief in the night. This is what Second Peter 3.10 says is sudden destruction. We see that the day of the Lord is sudden in its onset. We see that it is sudden in its consequences. And we see that it is sudden in its sealing. That it is sealed whenever the day of the Lord starts. The people there that are in rebellion to God will be sealed in their rebellion. They'll be stuck in their rebellion throughout the day of the Lord. And they won't have a choice. Just like Pharaoh, who once he started down that path that he went down, um, God sealed him in it. And guess what? Listen to me. Out in the wilderness, look... Get this. Out in the wilderness, you've got old Moses there. He's a nobody. He's feeding Jethro's sheep. Pharaoh doesn't even know about Moses anymore. The one that sought Moses' life is dead. The new Pharaoh doesn't even care about Moses. He's eating. He's drinking. He's marrying. He's giving in marriage. And out in the wilderness, there's a flame that appears in, in a burning bush to Moses. And he goes up and God appears to Moses as I am. Which name Jesus Christ claims. So there is Jesus Christ in the burning bush, the voice of God, the word of God speaking to Moses. And what did he say? I will harden Pharaoh's heart. When the day of the Lord came for Moses, you see, there's a day of the Lord in eschatology, but there's a day of the Lord for you. And when the day of the Lord came for Moses, that God's judgment or for Pharaoh, when the day of the Lord came for Pharaoh, when God's judgment was sealed for Pharaoh, he didn't get another choice. We find a couple times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but about 10 times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Romans 9 tells us that um, God had appointed Pharaoh to destruction. We have got to keep moving. But consider for a moment how clueless Pharaoh was. Think about him sitting there. What was he doing while the burning bush was happening? Maybe he was on a boat enjoying a fresh fish fry sitting there out on the Nile River with his servants fanning his head. He had no idea that God had just sealed his fate, that he had been marked down by God for destruction. And as he sat there, his heart hardened, and he didn't even know why. But God had his whole fate sealed. This is how the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Jesus Christ will come, catch away his bride to be with him in the air, seal the hardness of the hearts of the hard-hearted people of the world, launch the tribulation, come back at the end of the tribulation, destroy his enemies, set up his thousand-year rule, during which time the unrepentant sinner will chafe under the utopian perfect rule of Jesus Christ with no sin, no death, no torment, no pain, no thorns, the lion lying down with the lamb, and they will sit there chafing in rebellion against our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, at the end of the thousand years, the devil will be loosed and he will deceive the nations and they will gather to fight against Jesus and he will destroy them and judge them. So this is that day. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day, that that day should overtake you as a thief. And this is where we need to really spend our time is getting down here to this should overtake you as 
as a thief. Remember in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Uh, verse 8 had just told us that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so in direct context to the day of the Lord, Peter tells us to expect a thousand years. So there'll be a day and there'll be a day. And that thousand year day, God can hit the pause button. He can hit the play button. He can hit the slow down button. God can do whatever he wants to do because he's God. (coughs) So when you don't understand the Bible, listen to me, this is the key. Say, God, I don't understand this, but you're right. And then keep reading it. Now, We'll, we'll really get into this more, um, what the rest of the verses in Second Peter will apply a lot more to the verses that are coming up. First um, Thessalonians 5, 5, 6, 7, 8, etc. He says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye, ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now, um, this day of the Lord, he says, should not overtake you as a thief. Ye are, ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. So he's saying, you know, better ye that are in the light, you that are born again, you that have the, the Lord Jesus Christ living within your hearts. You are not of the darkness. You are not in darkness that that day should overtake you. God has given you the light. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Here is some of the light that God has given, and we're just going to kind of, well, we're not going to go fast. We can't go fast. We're going to roll through Matthew 24 here and try and get into Matthew 25 and how these two things work together, that 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 day should not overtake you as a thief. You are not in the darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. (coughs) All right, so Matthew 24. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, some of this is included. Some of this discourse is included in Mark 15 and in Luke 17, um, starting, I believe, in 21. You have to remember here who Jesus is talking to. This is a really big subject. I'm going to go slow, but I'm not going to try and explain the whole thing. I'm just going to outline it. And we're going to look at this outline of Matthew 24 so that we can understand what God's talking about in Matthew 25. This is needed. I know that we in this room have gone over this more than we've done it online. So some of you are thinking, we've already been over this. We need it. We need to get this down. We need to get this under. We are not in darkness. God has given us light. Who is the author of confusion? Who? Satan, the devil, is the author of confusion. The devil wants to make this confusing. God wants it to be clear enough for you. And if you have the light living in within you, then it can and it will be. So here's Jesus going to the temple. Now, does the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament go to the temple? No. 
So who is he talking to here? And what is the context, the setting? Who are the people that he's dealing with? The Jews, the nation of Israel. You have to understand that there are two kingdoms that run simultaneously. In fact, it's likely that there are three kingdoms running simultaneously because God usually does things in three. I'll just throw that out there for you to think about because I don't have that nailed down enough to preach on it. Just a thought. But there is a physical kingdom and there is a spiritual kingdom. (coughs) The physical kingdom, the spiritual kingdom is within you. The physical kingdom is on the literal earth. These, listen to me, if you divorce the physical from the spiritual or the spiritual from the physical, you're going to end up in bad trouble. The Jews divorced the the spiritual from the physical. The Jews only wanted the physical kingdom of God. They wanted Jesus to set up a literal throne today, but Jesus had a spiritual kingdom to build. He said, my kingdom is not of this world else would my servants fight that I should not be delivered unto you to Pilate. Jesus had a spiritual kingdom to build, but Jesus also has a physical kingdom to build. And today we have a bunch of theologians and a bunch of church people who have divorced the physical kingdom from the spiritual kingdom. And they see the spiritual kingdom and they don't understand the physical kingdom. Get this down. Pay attention. If you separate the spiritual kingdom from the physical kingdom, you will end up in the same mess the Pharisees ended up in. You will miss what God is doing, and it will warp your understanding of God and his doctrine. Listen, God created man in his image. He made him a body, a soul, and a spirit. God made Adam laying there as a body, and then he breathed into Adam, and the Bible says made him a living soul. Look at me today. Adam would not have been Adam without his body. Does this make sense? Are you getting this today? You right there. You getting this today. Adam would not have been Adam without a physical body. But Adam would not have been Adam without a soul. And you want to try and preach the kingdom without the body? You're a mess. You want to try and preach the kingdom without the soul? You're a mess. Both of those extremes are wrong. Both are in the Bible. The physical kingdom and the spiritual kingdom are both in the Bible. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. That was not what the disciples wanted to hear. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So here they ask three questions. These three questions will be the outline for the rest of the chapter of chapter 24 or most of the rest of the chapter. Jesus will begin what we call the Olivet Discourse by answering the three questions questions of the disciples. The disciples asked three questions that they thought all were part of the same event. They, Jesus had said, these stones will be thrown down. They thought that's going to be the end of the world. 
no way that that can be anything else. This is the kind of thought processes that they're dealing with and wondering. So they said, when shall these things be? These things of the stones being thrown down. What shall be the sign of thy coming? You're already here. What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So they asked him about these three things. Maybe an inkling of doubt had crept into their minds that these three things couldn't all exist at the same time, but they didn't understand it. And they're like, here's three events that Jesus has talked that we've got on our hearts, three events that we don't, that we need to know about. And they asked the question, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now in Eastern culture, they usually attack things um, logically exactly backwards from Western minds. It doesn't mean they're wrong. They just come at the question from a different direction. Now, Jesus was not Eastern culture and he was not Western culture. This is an amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus was central. He was right in the middle and Jesus is pertinent and the way Jesus taught affects every culture and every logic and every mindset. He, Jesus didn't teach in the way of the West and he didn't teach in the way of the East, but the way that he taught complements both schools of thought. So here it gives us the three questions and then it gives us and by the way, it gives us the three questions in order of chronology. And then Jesus answers the three questions in reverse, which is more of an Eastern way of answering it. <coughs> Jesus is the great master. Look at verse four. And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled for all these things. You say, wait, these things just a second must come to pass, but the end is not yet. What question is he answering? Question number one, when shall these things be? Question number two, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Question number three, and of the end of the world, which question is he answering when you read verse six? The end is not yet. All these things will come, he says, will come to pass, but the end is not yet. So he's addressing the end of the world, and he's talking about more things that will happen. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many and because iniquity shall abound the love of many shall wax cold but he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved and this gospel we've got to stop there for a second he that shall endure unto the end the end of what the end of the world now if you want to try to apply this to salvation that you have to endure to the end to be saved then if you die before the world is over you will not be saved. That would be an accurate way to view this if you're right and it's talking about salvation. The fact of the matter is you're wrong if you think it's talking about salvation. It's talking about those that are going to go through the hardships and come out the other side. They that endure to the end shall be saved. This is not talking about being your soul saved from sin. That would contradict all of Christ's other teachings. You cannot take one verse or even 10 verses that 
and then preach a contradictory doctrine to 10 other verses. You have to find out how they reconcile before you truly have rightly divided the word of God. As long as you are teaching contradictions, you are not teaching the Bible. So he says in this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations and then shall the end come again the end the end the end Jesus Christ answering the third question of the disciples about the end that's coming so this end he says the gospel would be preached and then shall the end come well guess what the gospel has been preached and by the way the end of the world is after the after Satan is loosed and God destroys destroys the earth at the end at the close of the day of the Lord second Peter 310 the end um, 11 and 12 the elements will melt with a fervent heat that's the close of the day of the Lord so this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached and then shall the end come he's not saying that when the gospel is preached throughout the world that will make the world end that's a wrong application the Bible teaches us that the gospel has already gone out throughout all the earth it says verily its sound has gone out throughout all the earth. So to think that we are somehow responsible for ushering in this time is wrong. We've got a, it's, it's a weird twist on reformed theology that a lot of, um, a lot of good fundamentalist conservative Bible believing churches have kind of taken this and they think that it's up to them to tell enough people about Jesus for Christ to come back. You missed it. That's not what this is talking about. The gospel of the kingdom is being preached, shall be preached, has been preached in the in the tribulation. God says that an angel will fly through heaven preaching the everlasting gospel during the tribulation and the end that comes is not This is where we get all tangled up in this chapter. The end is not talking about the tribulation. It's talking about the destruction of the earth, the end of the world. That's the question that the disciples asked, and it's what Jesus answered. So here Jesus goes on. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes and woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days but pray ye that your flight be not in the winter neither on the sabbath day for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no nor ever shall be and except those days shall be shortened there should no flesh be saved but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened so he preached about when the end would come and then he tells them about some of the things that happen before the end comes obviously all of the rest of this that's going to happen the abomination of the desolation and remember this is exact opposite of how we would usually approach it but God's the one that gets to outline his own text and Jesus decided to start at the end and work backwards so here he starts at the end and then he starts talking about some of the events that are happening during the tribulation so that he can tell them about the coming of Christ. Verse 23, which, by the way, is the second question. So here we are in the second question, the sign of thy coming. <coughs> 
So you have, he's, he's talked to them about the abomination of the desolation. He's talking to them about flee into the mountains. Um, don't come down to take anything out of your house. Again, I don't have all the answers. I don't have this all figured out. I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. We're looking at the day of the Lord and that you are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. He says here, then if any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ or there, believe it not for there are false Christs and false, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders. Now, if you're trying to make a perfect chronology in this chapter, instead of just trying to take Christ's outline and learn what he's teaching you, you're going to get messed up. Do the false Christs come before or after the abomination of the desolation? Think. So, for example, you see in verse 15, the abomination of the desolation in verse um, in verse 24, false Christs and false prophets showing great signs and great wonders. Obviously, the false Christs and the false prophets have been coming and have come long before. This is not chronologically straightforward. Christ is teaching the answers to the questions, not a straight chronology of events. Also remember that this is brought to you through a Jewish perspective. So here he says, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Now we're going to get here. This is absolutely amazing how God put this thing together. So here you have the Jews looking for their Christ. There's false Christ. There's false prophets. There's great signs. There's wonders. Um, there's this warning that the abomination of desolation is going to be set up in the temple, um, which, by the way, the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD, and yet none of this has happened yet. So there will be a rebuilding of the temple that's not included in this discourse. These are warnings that Christ is giving, and he tells the Jew, which is the elect of Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11. God's, listen to me, you want to preach predestination and then you try and preach with the same mouth that God has cast away Israel. That is the most foolish lie that has ever entered um, the Protestant churches. What a mess. God who predestines and has an election according to grace has an election, a remnant of physical Jews that he will restore. And the doctrine of predestination is taught in its context in the Bible, primarily to assure us that God has not cast away Israel. The doctrine of predestination has more pertinence in the discussion of the Jew than it does the Gentile. So here he says, behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers believe it not for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west so shall also the coming of the son of man be so they're asking about the sign of the coming of Christ but the coming of Christ is not one event there are multiple comings of Christ Christ came many times in the old testament before he had a body Christ came at it at Bethlehem as a baby in the there 
in Mary's womb that was born in Bethlehem. He came at the conception whenever God the Holy Ghost hovered over Mary and put Christ in the womb. Christ came to Israel in a way when he was shown to Israel, revealed to Israel as Christ through his miracles and preaching. Christ came again from the dead and showed himself alive to Mary. And then to the other disciples, he he went to the Father and he came again to the disciples after that and spoke to them and then he ascended to glory and the disciples stood there watching and the angels said this same Jesus as you have seen him go up into heaven shall so return from heaven but there's a coming of Jesus Christ that's as the lightning that cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west so shall also the coming of the son of man be for wheresoever the carcass is there will the eagles be gathered together in Luke 17 he says wheresoever the body is in the Old Testament I believe Isaiah um, 26, 29, if I have my reference right. I hope that's right. Don't have time to check it. Um, well, we better have time to check it. Let's just check it because I don't want to give you the wrong reference. Isaiah 26 and 29. Yeah, see, there's not even a 29. Try 19. There we go. Thy dead men shall live. Isaiah 26, 19. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. This is the resurrection, the catching away of the church, the dead body of God in his living resurrected state coming through the heavens for his church. So again, what is the perspective? Why would he call himself a dead body? Why would he call himself a carcass? Because to the Jew, Christ is dead. And here is Christ coming through the heavens. To them, he's dead. To the church, he's alive. And the churches who will mount up, the church who will mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. The church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air as the, as Christ goes through heaven, as lightning out of the east shineth even unto the west. The Israeli, the Jew, will see him as a dead Lord. They will see him whom they pierce when he comes they will not see him in his living state to the Jew he is dead until after he sets up his kingdom so here Jesus comes back for his church gathers together the those saints of the church age there's been many resurrections as we noted before from Lazarus to um, all the way back to the son of the widow of Nain all the way back to Elijah and the little child that he rose from the dead and many others throughout the Bible and there's been many catching several catching aways at least in type Enoch literally Literally taken up. Elijah literally taken up, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This is not a new thing. And it's not something that's limited to the to one tiny little event. This, but it's something that is going to happen. And look at this. So here, in working backwards, he's talked about the end. Before the end is the abomination of the desolation. Before the abomination of the desolation, working backwards are all these false Christs and false prophets and the return of Jesus. Jesus Christ coming out of the east, even unto the west, as lightning gathering up his church. And before, um, and then he and then he switches that thing immediately after the tribulation of those days. This is not easy to follow if you're thinking chronologically. You just have to follow what Christ is saying. So he switches here immediately after the tribulation of those days. Shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light? Now this ties into our text. First. Thessalonians 5, 4, but ye brethren are not in darkness. 
that that day should overtake you as a thief. So this here, where you have the tribulation that follows the coming of the Son of Man as lightning. So here goes the Son of Man as lightning, then the tribulation, then after that the darkness, the sun and the moon shall not give her light, the sun shall be dark and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken, verse 30, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Bible talks about the tribes of earth here. Jesus did. It also talks about in the prophets, the 12 tribes of Israel mourning every family apart when they see their crucified Lord come back. They will look upon him whom they pierced. This is the dead Christ to them. And his resurrection is a thing that will strike fear, not hope in their hearts at first. And then just like Joseph and his brethren, which is all a typology there that we can't get into right now. When Joseph's brethren saw Joseph, Joseph was dead to them. They were staring at the dead body of Joseph that wasn't dead. And it was a horror to them. And they mourned, but Joseph comforted his brethren. Hallelujah. And so will Christ also comfort his people whenever he restores them. Here's the answer to the second question. And then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. Time flies when you're having fun and when you're struggling to get out truth. How about that? (laughs) And we're having both today. So here's the son of man in heaven. The sign of the Son of Man. This is the second question. What shall be the sign of thy coming? Jesus Christ did not answer this point blank because it could not be answered point blank. The sign of his coming is bigger than just a bright light in the sky. It begins with the lightning coming out of the east and then unto the west, the catching up of the church, the tribulation, the darkening of the sun and the moon, the stars falling from heaven, and then the sign of the Son of Man in in heaven coming. So this sign is a bigger topic than one day. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. You say, there's us. No, there's the Jew. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Before you try and take the spot of his elect, this is the 144,000 that he talks about, 12,000 from each tribe, gathered together from one end of heaven to another. Now learn a parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth um, his leaves. Now the fig tree is Israel in in prophecy. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. We're getting into his third question of these things. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till keywords here all these things shall all these things be fulfilled this is where a lot of people get tangled up what are these things you have to remember the context what was the question that was asked that jesus was answering when shall these things be was um, from verse 2 and jesus said unto them see ye not all these things verily i say unto you there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down verse 3 tell us when shall these things be jesus finally answers them when shall these things be 
Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now, why would Jesus teach this backwards? I had a boss whenever I started working that would tell me things backwards because he knew if he told me frontwards, I would run before I heard all of the instructions. Do you hear me? He knew that if he told me, go to the work van and get a screw, that I wouldn't listen to where the screw was. And then when I got to the van, I wouldn't remember, and I would come back and have to ask him again. So he would tell me backwards. He would say, there's a box, buy a tub, and it's blue, and it has this type of screw in it, and it's in the left side of my van, and I want you to go get it. Because if that way, I would go with the first thing stuck in my mind being where the screw was exactly. So what Jesus did was he taught exactly backwards of what they wanted. They wanted to know when is the temple going to be thrown down and Jesus knew that in the weakness of their human flesh and their human understanding if he told them when the temple would be thrown down they would not get any of the rest of it so he let them hold in suspense about the temple he even mentioned the temple still standing there um, in the in the holy place in verse 15. So he left them in suspense about when the temple would be thrown down so, it, so that he could teach these other answers to their questions in a way that they would remember. He gets down here to verse um, 34 and he tells them the temple's going to be knocked down this generation. And it was 40 years later. By the way, how long did the Jews wander in the wilderness before they all died? Whenever they rebelled against God and would not go into the promised land, 40 years. How long did the Jews have after Jesus died to wander in the wilderness before they all died? Before Titus came and destroyed the temple, broke down the walls, leveled the palaces, um, burned Jews on crosses all over and scattered the remainder of them across the face of the earth. How long did they have? 40 years. Not a coincidence. Jesus said, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So here you have Jesus's answer to the disciples questions beginning at the end and working all the way back in time to the point of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD that would come in only 40 years of time from this discourse. In verse 36, Jesus changes the subject again. It's related, but it's a different subject. But of that day and hour knoweth no man that day in the Bible is the day of the Lord, not the day of these things, the day of the Lord. He says, of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the son of man be. By the way, when Noah entered into the ark, he says, until the day came, they, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. They kept on with their life until that day. What is it actually? What's it telling us here? Pay attention. When Noah entered into the ark, did everybody on the earth die in that 24-hour period? Answer the question. How long did it wait before it started raining? 
seven days before it started raining. Noah was in the ark seven days, but the judgment of God was sealed already. Do you see that? It was sealed for seven days, a picture of the tribulation. And then you had 40 days of rain followed with a total of 120 days that the waters prevailed upon the earth. And some of those people lived through some of that, but by the end of it, they were all dead. So here you have the same thing. They did not know. What were they doing when Noah was walking up the ramp? You see, listen, you've got to get this. God's judgment does not come when it's pronounced in heaven. But when it's pronounced in heaven, it is sealed on earth. So God's judgment then pronounced in heaven against this ungodly world. When God finally says it's time, it's time right now. The world is not going to feel that just like think about Noah, how Noah was walking up that ramp to get into the ark. His family's going in through the door and there's all these people all around him, just eating, drinking, marrying, giving him marriage. And then news comes to town by the end of the day. Hey, did you notice the door? shut down at the ark and nobody's walking around and people say what and maybe a gra- maybe a crowd went down to look maybe a crowd gathered up I th- and I told you the other day I think maybe they had a city council meeting we're gonna go we're gonna pull him out of there we're gonna go burn his ark down over his head with fire we're gonna go besiege this place and get I don't know maybe they did but in any case he was in the ark and he was sealed and they didn't recognize the judgment of God when it came and neither will this world so the judgment of God is sealed what's going to happen when it when God does it when the day happens when that day starts at the beginning of that day he says then shall two be in the field the one shall be taken and the other left two women shall be grinding at the mill the one shall be taken and the other left again we're back on the day of the Lord we talked about um, the end of the Lord, the end of the world, the sign of thy coming, and then when shall these things be? And then Jesus got back to the day of the Lord, which begins there with the catching away of his people. It says, two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, the other left. Watch ye there, watch therefore, for you know what not, what hour your Lord cometh. But know this, that if the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would have come, There's the thief Christ. Again, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready for in such an hour as ye think that the son of man, um, for in such an hour as ye think not, the son of man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord, Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and in an hour that he is not aware and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here he says that he's going to appoint this man, this un, this servant his portion with the hypocrites there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth it says he shall cut them asunder so this this is a very important part 
that we need to get of the day of the Lord. He says, ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Here the servant that is eating and drinking with the drunken again is the Jew. There is an application here that can be made to the church. There's applications that can be made to the saved, but this is talking about the Jew. This is talking about um, what all these guys out here like Soros and um, all these other Jews out here that are eating and drinking with the drunken, smiting their fellow servants. Um, they say, my Lord delayeth is coming. The Jews right now over in Israel say, um, it's, if this is what it means to be God's chosen people, I wish he'd choose somebody else. My Lord is delayed is coming. Um, he's not come. Where's God all these years? Where's God come? And this is the, the condition that we find the Jew in. And here he says that God will cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. This is the time of Jacob's trouble that will come. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is often used to preach hell. This is before hell, and hell is worse than this. That's pretty amazing to think about, isn't it? This weeping and gnashing of teeth is talking about the great tribulation. Lord, help us today. Here in Matthew 25... I don't know what exactly we're how we're going to order this because we have there's so much here that we just don't have time to cover it all. He says, "But ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief." Now um, we're just going to close it for today, Father. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would take this message, take take my feeble efforts and use them. Help me to preach your word. Help me to study to show myself approved. Help me not to make stupid mistakes. Help me to rightly divide the word of truth. Where I've been wrong, Lord, and I don't see it, I pray that you would show it to your flock, that they would say, "Where? Did, why did he even say that?" There's obvious scripture here, and that they wouldn't be um, thrown off if I've made a mistake in any of this, Lord. I pray that your word would be true even if it makes me out to be a liar. I pray, Lord God, that you'd be glorified, that your son would be exalted. In Jesus' name and for Christ's sake, amen.